Hey guys, I want to welcome you to the weekly Wednesday for the Financial Freedom Newsletter, where every week, every Wednesday, we delve into something inspirational, motivational, something excerpt taken from the Financial Freedom Weekly Newsletter. Wherever you are, if you're listening on Spotify, on iTunes, Google, be sure to click the like, subscribe, share, comment. Without ado, let's get into the show. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey guys, I'm really excited about today's topic and guest. I have Dan Bredesen, and he's going to talk to us all about organizational culture, leadership, how to build a great organization via culture. And like I said, for the audience members out there, the executives, entrepreneurs out there, it's going to be a great conversation. So, Dan, welcome. Well, hey, it's, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me, Chris. Yeah. So tell people about your story, your background, how you got started, and we'll, we'll get into it. Kind of the if, if they're going to go with the, the origin story here, um, I, I grew up on a small farm in southwest Wisconsin. And uh, then eventually uh, went on to uh, the University of Wisconsin. That's where I got my, my undergrad. And uh, then I actually spent some time working abroad. Um, I came back and didn't really know what I, I wanted to do professionally or, or career-wise. I, ha- I have a do- my bachelor's degree is in zoology, of all things. Um, but I uh, didn't really know what I, I wanted to do with that post-graduation. So once I came back from, from living abroad for a little while, uh, it was uh, suggested to me to get a career in sales. So, hey, you know, that would be a good entree in, into business. If you can learn how to sell a product or service, then that's going to serve you well, you know, no matter where you go. A lot of businesses are looking to, you know, give the opportunity for people to advance if they can show the ability to sell. So I did that. And uh, the particular products and services that I, I were that I was selling uh, were like employee benefits and insurance uh, type products and financial services related, but it was business to business sales. So my primary uh, customer and, and prospect was uh, any business that had three or more employees, regardless of industry. So it wasn't any particular industry. I, I happen to work a lot uh, in the healthcare field with, with lots of doctor's offices and hospitals and things like that. But the, the first step in the sales process was uh, talking to the decision maker. This would be the, the president, CEO, someone in the C-suite of the organization. And then if I got the go-ahead from there, I would move on to HR supervisors. And if I further got the yes, then I would actually sit down and talk to every frontline employee. So I told you all that to tell you this, which is where I initially got this sort of interest and fascination with organizational culture was while I was sitting down in the C-suite talking to the president of the company, the CEO, sometimes they would bring up the culture that they they wanted to in, inspire or build within the organization. Um, if they talked about it, I noticed a correlation where HR supervisors and other folks, they would also talk about the kind of culture that was present. And then down to the, down to the, the employee level, 
So it's really interesting. I had several clients for 10 or 15 years, and you really get to know an organization if you're talking to each and every level of the organization over the course of a decade. And I noticed a strong correlation between if if the leaders in the C-suite were talking about culture and the type of culture that they wanted to create, was that actually happening down on the ground level with the frontline employees? Sometimes there was a disconnect. Sometimes there, there wasn't. Sometimes they were right in line. So that kind of piqued my interest around this, this idea between organizational culture, leadership, and the performance of the organization. Eventually, I went on to lead organizations of my own, and I, I kind of looked back to the lessons that I learned while I was talking to all the different levels of an organization to, to sort of grow the type of culture that was ultimately going to lead to a commitment uh, from the organizational members and improve the performance of the organization that I led. So, yeah, really interesting uh, intro. So, you know, kind of we'll, we'll uh, dive into it because there's a lot of themes and topics that are really interesting. Um, you know, first thing is I, I've heard this quote before and it talks about um, culture eats strategy for breakfast every day. And if you look at like, you know, organizations like Uber, you know, basically they were just execute. You look at Facebook, execute, you know, you can debate whether it was a good culture or not, but can anyone explain how culture eats strategy for breakfast? Right. It's interesting that I actually talk about that. Um, I ended up writing a book called uh, uh, Seeds of Culture, and it uh, it's about improving organizational performance by growing a culture of commitment. And Whenever the, the the topic of culture comes up, invariably someone within the room is going to raise their hand and say, "Well, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast." Like as as if you know we haven't haven't heard it a hundred times. Like everyone's always bringing that up, and I always thought, okay, well, there's a couple things. First of all, they always say, "Well, you know, Peter Drucker says Peter Drucker says that culture eats strategy for breakfast." Come to find out, Peter Drucker actually never said that. If you were to, if you were to actually go to you know Google it and go to the Drucker Institute, the Drucker Institute has a whole uh, page on their website of quotes that are misattributed to Peter Drucker, and I think that's a lot of times folks will attribute that quote to Peter Drucker simply because it sounds like something that he would have said. Um, so no, he didn't say that. But <laughs> w- whenever so I'm sure at some point someone did, and and I would actually agree with that sentiment that that a culture will beat strategy, but. Two, two things to that. Number one, can you tell me how culture beats strategy, right? Yeah, culture may eat. If culture eats strategy for breakfast, how does it prepare the meal? That's what I'd like to know. And then the other thing is, why does it have to be adversarial? Why, why does culture have to eat strategy? Why don't we have a culture that is actually going to invite strategy to the table? How, how can we get a culture that's going to improve the strategy that we lay out? And those were some of the, the ideas that, that I researched when I, when I was writing the book is, Instead of just saying culture is strategy for breakfast, can we figure out how it does that and how how culture actually works and how it impacts the performance of an organization? Yeah, really interesting. Yeah, because, um, you know, you hear about these, you know, these organizations, basically, some of them are like if you look at Zappos, you know, culture. And we look at other organizations that are like strategy, execution, get big fast, you know, break things fast, you know, just kind of, you know, and then um could be toxic culture as well, but you know they got the job done. But whether or not you know the merits of that is debatable. Um, so, kind of talk about this idea of um, uh, this uh, seven seeds of culture. I'm just curious what the seven seeds are. 
Sure. The, the premise or my, or my basic thesis is that, so I mentioned that I, I grew up on a farm and as I was working with leaders in many different industries and many different sizes of organizations, I noticed common themes with the leaders and the organizations that were, were winning uh, with culture and their performance and the organizations that let's just be binary about it, the ones that were losing, you know, both in terms of performance and in terms of, of their culture and the winning organizations, their, their leaders, they reminded me of someone. <laughs> they, they reminded me of my dad. Um, and they, you know, not that they all look like a Midwestern dairy farmer, but they, they had the patience of, of a farmer. Right? They, they, they used words like, you know, growth and, and nurturing performance and mentoring and the leaders of the organizations that were, were losing, you know, they would talk about like, you know, we need to instill this culture. We need to build this culture. We need to lay a solid foundation for culture. And it, it kind of hit me as like an aha moment that culture is organic. You know, culture it needs to be grown. Culture is grown. It's not manufactured, right? It's an organic process. And it, it and like any organic process, it's going to start with, you know, the right seeds, right? So I, I spent some time, did a couple of years uh, in research and in writing this book. And the the seeds of culture that I hit upon, um, I came up with by asking what I call the absence question, meaning that in the absence of blank, can you get a strong, positive, committed culture, right? Fill, fill in the blank. So for example, the, the first seed of culture is uh, effective communication. Well, in, in the absence of effective communication, are you going to have a strong, positive, committed culture? No, you're not. So that's, I had a list initially of probably 20 different seeds of culture that we could, you know, just things that I was writing down. I'm like, but if we're really gonna, gonna boil this down to what are the key things that are going to help build a, a positive, committed culture? What are they? So first one I just hit upon would be uh, effective communication. And that's, they're in no particular order uh, with the exception of the first one, meaning that if we're not communicating effectively, please don't try to grow culture. It's just going to be a nightmare. It's, it's going to be a mess. And the um, uh, effective communication, the three things that I I talk about in the book are, can you uh, communicate with clarity, consistency, and transparency? If you can clearly uh, state your message, uh, if you can do it with transparency and you can do it consistently, those are going to be the three, uh, the three attributes of effective communication. So the, the second seed of culture is, is ethics. Not a lot of folks want to work for unethical organizations. Now there's, there's examples of organizations that have won financially in the short term um, who are unethical, but you know we don't have to wait these days for Woodward and Bernstein to, to write something in the Washington Post about some company. We, like the, the, the rate at which information uh, travels out there, like unethical companies are found out quicker. They're, you know, they can't hide things under the rug anymore. Everyone with a cell phone's got a camera on it. It can can document unethical misdeeds. So unethical companies are found out faster and they're being punished more harshly, perhaps than they ever have in the past. Uh, so having a strong ethical base and, and the roots of ethics in your organizations, that's number two. Uh, the, the third seat of culture is uh, psychological safety. And psychological safety has actually, the, the idea of it has been around since the 60s. It's really in the 90s. Um, Amy Edmondson, um, 
she's at Harvard. She's got a great, uh, great book called uh, The Fearless Organization. If you ever check that out, it, it's a good, good book. And it talks about psychological safety. And this means that a person is not afraid to bring their ideas to the table. They can, they can experiment. Uh, they can experiment things without fear of retribution or, or someone, you know, coming back and biting them in, uh, later. So psychological safety is, is the third thing. Uh, the fourth thing is uh, diversity is a good start, meaning that the world is, is getting more and more diverse. You know, the, the world is not, is not going to get less diverse anytime soon. So this is the idea that diversity is a good start, but you must also move forward with equity and eventually moving to an in inclusive environment. Um, if we're really going to have innovation and uh, the, the organization is going to move forward. Um, the next one is actually generosity and being generous with not only money, but also time within the organization. The next one would be autonomy and letting the individuals within the organization um, have a certain level of autonomy because that's very motivating and it's going to increase their commitment. And then finally, it's, it's uh, mutual accountability. And I call this the hybrid seed of culture, because if you've planted the first six seeds of culture, you're eventually going to move to a state of mutual accountability where the members of the organization are holding each other accountable without the leadership having to come in and do it. So the way that accountability is, is often leveraged nowadays is really just kind of code for micromanagement, right? Versus having the members of the organization hold themselves accountable. So th yeah. those are the seeds of culture in a nutshell. Interesting. It kind of reminds me when you were talking about this, you know, especially DEI, the in diversity, equity, inclusion, you know, like a lot of the top engineers for the top companies are from overseas, you know, India and China, and then mm -hmm. kind of like United States is kind of making it harder, like, you know, immigration wise, which is kind of <laughs> contradictory, but um, kind of yeah. talk about the most common culture mistakes leaders make. Some of the most common mistakes that I see would be that they they think like a carpenter instead of thinking like a farmer. So one of the analogies that I make is that if a leader can think of themselves as a culture farmer uh, versus someone who is trying to build the culture. So here's what I mean by common mistakes is they leaders who leverage force, control, and speed, that's that's a mistake when it comes to culture. What I mean by that is if they're thinking like a carpenter and they're going to build the culture and they're going to lay a foundation for, for culture, you know, a carpenter can, you know, screw together and nail together wood, you know, they can weld things together, you know, if you're working in construction and they, they can use force in order to build something. Well, culture is really, it's about human beings and human beings do not respond well to force when they're being forced to do something. So here's one example is there's a friend of mine who works for, works for uh, an IT company and, and he has been asked to be part of their culture committee. And this culture committee is basically put in place to, to drive the culture that they want, that the C-suite wants from the top down through the organization. And I'm just like, wow, that, that ain't gonna work. That's, culture is not a top-down thing. It's, it's, it's an, it's an organic, you know, growing up from the bottom and it's, it's, we'll see, uh, we'll see how that goes. So when, when I mm -hmm. see leaders put together things like culture committees and it is to 
like I said, instill something from the top down, trying to force culture into the organization. That's one mistake. Uh, because they're also trying to leverage the second thing, which is control, meaning that they can control what type of culture is going to be in the organization that you got to let loose of that, that control. It's my, my dad, when he would plant seeds in the ground, he, he couldn't go out there and like grab hold of a corn stalk and pull it up out of the ground, make it grow faster. Right. He couldn't, uh, he also couldn't really control the results that he could get. He, the best he could do is try to cultivate, you know, the corn in his field to the best of his ability. And, you know, at the end of the day, just pray for rain sometimes. And if, if leaders are leveraging force and control and think they can you know, drive culture down into org organization, that's, that's bad. And then finally speed, um, growing a culture of commitment within the organization is going to take about twice as long as you think it's going to take. It's not going to happen quickly. Like, yeah, you can build things quickly. Like the Empire State Building opened up 13 months after construction started. Like that, I've seen a bunch of Amish guys like raise a barn in an afternoon. Like construction can happen quickly. But if something's growing, if it's an organic process like culture, it is, it's going to take time. So be patient with it. Have the patience of a farmer. It'd probably be a good idea since we've used the word culture like a hundred times in this in this episode already would be to maybe like define you know what is culture would that would that make sense yeah because yeah. uh i wanted to you know kind of you know what is you know difference between you know what is culture what's the difference between or culture and or climate and yeah yeah and that's yeah. that's that's a great question because they're often like, the two are often you know just thrown together like culture and climate the the most succinct and best because um, culture is really a buzzword, right? I mean, uh, especially during 2021 into 2022, like when, when folks were talking about the great resignation and everybody was talking about the great resignation, culture was like a buzzword that everyone was 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 talking about, but f few folks took the time to actually go and like define what it is. So the, the most succinct uh, definition of culture that I've come across that that makes the most sense to me is how we do things around here. Now, I know that seems overly simplistic, but let me explain it. The culture of the organization really is how we do things around here. When a new employee comes on board and they go through a new hire uh, uh, orientation, right? They're going to be learning the products. They're going to be learning the processes. They're going to be learning the systems of, of what that organization wants to do, right? But it's not until they actually go out and they spend some time around around their coworkers. They see how, how leaders talk to their direct reports. They see how uh, customer service talks to customers. They see how salespeople sell. Like they see how people walk, talk, dress, act, how they interact with one another. That's really the culture of, of how we do things around here. Sure, new hire orientation can tell you what we do around here, but the culture is gonna be determined by the members of that organization. And it's gonna be how we do things around here. So if you're thinking about what is the culture of an organization? Well, it's how we do things around here, the manner in which we do it. Do we do it ethically? Do we do it? Are, are we a high performance organization? So it, it's how we do things around here. And climate is, it, it's a part of it. So in an effort to cultivate culture, I, I call it the 4CP life cycle of performance, meaning that if culture is an organic process, which I believe it to be, it's going to go through a life cycle. Um, and there are four C's in that life cycle that lead to the P, which is performance. The first one being culture. Culture is how we do things around here. The climate is how we feel about the culture. So if someone is at a happy hour 
or they're at a backyard barbecue and they're talking about, about their place of employment, talking about where maybe they volunteer their time and whether they're happy about it or whether they're angry about it, that, that feeling of, you know, how do I feel about the way that we do things around here? Does that make sense so far? So yeah. that's how the, the culture feels in the, the climate's kind of the vibe of the place is what, how do people feel about the way that we're going about things? So the culture eventually leads into the climate. So those are the first two seasons. Th those are both like group level constructs, meaning it's how we do things around here. And then how we feel about the culture, how we feel about the way we do things around here. Mm -hmm. When we move into kind of the third C around the life cycle, the third C is commitment. And that is an individual decision based upon the climate. So how we do things around here is going to determine how I feel about the way that we do things around here, which is going to lead to me deciding, do I want to continue to be a part of this organization? Do I want to commit my full self, make that, that organizational commitment? That's you know, a fancy word for it to this organization, because I like the way that this makes me feel. If so, that that's a, that's an individual decision. If there's enough individuals within the group who have made a commitment, they, they like the way that you do, we do things. We like the way that it makes me feel. I'm going to commit to it. If there's enough of those individuals who care about the organization and care about each other, that's going to lead to the fourth C, which is community. And when you have an organization with, and I, I grew up seven miles outside of a, a very small town of like 2,400 people. And I can tell you that that small town sense of community, when push comes to shove, it makes a huge impact on the performance of an organization. And then when that community is working, that feeds back into the culture of, oh, how do we do things around here? Well, we do it as, we do it as a community, which leads to the climate, which leads to more commitment, which leads to a greater sense of community. Um, and I think especially, at, you know, post-pandemic, post-COVID-19, there's, there's a lot of people out there looking for a sense of community. A lot of people decided to quit their job because they didn't feel as though they had a sense of community. And now th that's one thing that organizations are struggling with that, you know, there's a large percentage of the workforce that's working remote is how can we build that, that sense of community? So that's one of the, one of the things that I'm looking into now is how can we continue to create that sense of community when folks aren't showing all showing up at the same place when they're working remote? So, yeah. Which is kind of, I know we have like, you know, four or five minutes and we kind of ended on like you, because you have a, this really great talk on culture climate, which brings me to the next question is what caused the great re resignation? Was it, was it basically just people realizing, you know, kind of aha moment, kind of throw the water in the face, kind of wake up and then, um, and how does now this remote work environment impact the culture? Sure. The, the book would have come out about six months earlier, but because uh, I started writing it in around June of, of 2020, the book would have come out about six months earlier, but <laughs> it was right in the middle of like the great resignation. When the great resignation was at, the, you know, every headline, every, every third article on LinkedIn was about the great resignation, you know, NPR, BBC, like everyone was talking about about the great resignation. I'm like, wow, I can't write a book about culture and not talk about the great resignation. So it, it took me a few months to really like to dig into it a little bit uh, to determine just to learn more about it. So the, you know, most of the second chapter of the book is, is devoted to some of the reasons for it. And I came down to two uh, reasons. Um, 
So we've got the great resignation and I, I came up with two, two ideas on this, which was one is, is it the great resignation or is it the great correction? And I'll talk about that one. Or is it the great epiphany? So the two reasons, you know, the great, the great correction is really based upon economic factors. The great epiphany is based upon emotional factors. So as I see it, there, there's two things to describe what happened with the great resignation. Well, the, the great resignation was defined by all of the people who were quitting. Um, the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics went, had been measuring this since I think like 2001, the number of people who quit their job every month, right? And we're not talking about people who got fired or people who died, retired, or, or just separation. This is people who straight up quit. They resigned. I'm out of here. From, I think it was like 243 months in a row, from like early 2000, for 243 months, as far back as the Bureau of Labor Statistics was measuring the number of quits per month in the United States, it never went more than 4 million. Okay. It never went more than 4 million. But then you get into 2021, into early 22, for nine out of 10 months in a row, it was over 4 million. So you think about something that hadn't happened for 243 months in a row, but suddenly nine out of 10 months, more than 4 million Americans are quitting their job every month. That, that deserves like the great moniker, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's, that is some kind of great um, problem that's happening. So that's how it got its name and why everyone was talking about it. Well, let's, let's, let's go back to uh, 2000 and roughly nine, right? Coming out of the great recession. Ever since the the kind of the Great Recession was starting to, we were starting to come back from that. In the ten years prior to 2020, the the number of people quitting their job was going up like this. In 2019, the Society for Human Resources Management they had estimated that in 2020 there would be something like 47 million people quitting their job in for the year. Right. So so Sherm was tracking the number of quits over a 10 year period. So that was in 2019, but then something happened in 2020. Well, what happened? It was, it was COVID, right? <laughs> and companies started like laying people off, right? People were losing their job. Well, who's gonna quit their job if everyone around them is getting laid off or were getting fired from their job, right? So un unemployment like spiked in like March, April, of 2020 didn't come back until July, August. So, you know, when the world started to shut down from COVID, people stopped quitting their jobs because they weren't confident they could go find another one. That, that makes sense. They, they, I'm not going to quit my job because Jimmy across the street, he just got fired. You know, Jimmy's across the street. He's been told not to show up to work because they don't know what to do about this COVID thing. The number of resignations just dropped in 2020. Well, eventually when the world started to open back up again, companies needed to hire back and they, they started opening up and things like that. And the, the job market kind of flipped, flipped to a seller's market for labor. And people realized that, you know, okay, I've been waiting a year to quit this job. Or the other thing is they got used to working from home. It's a seller's market for labor. People got used to working from home. Then their employer started inviting people back. Like, hey, we want you to come back to the office. They're like, yeah, no, I don't want to do that. So I'm going to quit. I'm going to go find another job. So really resignations are a pro-cyclical economic event. If if the economy's, you know, a dumpster fire, then people aren't going to quit their job. But when yeah. the economy's, economy's booming, people are more likely to quit their job because they're confident they can find another one. So was the great resignation really this aha moment or was it just really the labor market correcting itself? 
after mm-hmm. it, the world opened up from COVID-19. So there, that's part of it. But there is also some emotion built into it, meaning the great epiphany. While people were stuck at home trying to do their job, homeschooling their kids because the schools were closed, whatever, they 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 were really left with the bare bones of their work, meaning that if you're reporting into the office, there's a certain amount of uh, social, there's the social network and the fabric when you're reporting to an office that goes along with the, the work that you're actually doing. And, you know, it could be argued what percentage of a person's happiness or job satisfaction is tied to the actual work they're doing and how much of it is dis- tied to the people that they're doing it with. Yeah. So if the people that they were doing it with was kind of stripped away from them because they went remote, they were forced to take a real hard look at what's the work that I'm actually doing. And do mm-hmm. I actually like that work? And do I want to continue doing that work for 40 hours a week for the rest of my life? And about 4 million people a month said, nah, I don't mm-hmm. want to do that. I want to, I want to go into something else. So the great resignation is emotional and economic. So that's, that's the two, the two pieces that fit together to yeah. make so many uh, people move on. Interesting. Really. How can people follow you, you know, reach out to you, check out your work. I know you got your book on Amazon. I'm going to check it out afterwards mm-hmm. as well. So um, how, and uh, how can people contact sure. you? Sure. Yeah, well, it's uh, yeah, the book's available anywhere that you buy books. Uh, it's uh, called Seeds of Culture. Uh, I think I got a copy of it right here. So, Seeds of Culture: Improve Organizational Performance by Growing a Culture of Commitment. Available anywhere you buy books. Amazon, Barnes and Noble, you Thanks. name it. My nothing, nothing made my daughter more happy than knowing that her daddy's book was for sale at her favorite <laughs> store, Target. Uh, and then also uh, Dan Bradison, author at Instagram. You can find me on LinkedIn, Dan Bradison, danbradison.com. So that's D-A-N-B-R-E-D-E-S-O-N. Uh, that's where folks can check me out. Excellent. And uh, for all the listeners out there, let's thank Dan for coming. Really interesting talk about culture and all of his resources will be in the links and show notes. Be sure to check out his book on Amazon, which I'll do. And um, thanks for coming on to the podcast. Chris, it was awesome to hear. Thanks for having me. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I hope you really enjoyed that wonderful, inspirational, motivational piece. Again, if you, wherever you are listening, if you liked it, be sure to like, comment, share, subscribe. We're on everywhere, Spotify, iTunes, Google, Amazon, Audible. And without much ado, be sure to thank this show's sponsors, and we'll see you next week.